0: The landscape for Alzheimer's disease is rapidly changing. Today's episode of Theoretically Speaking features experts, Dr. Luke Stokel, Program Director and Project Scientist in Behavioral and Social Research at National Institutes on Aging, and Dr. Carl Marcy, Chief Psychiatrist and Managing Director of Mental Health and Neuroscience at OM1, as they discuss the critical need for earlier detection leading to potentially life-changing earlier interventions. Let's jump in.
1: Thank you, Sydney. Luke, uh, great to have you aboard here and welcome to this conversation. You and I have been uh, talking a little bit about Alzheimer's recently, and I thought we might share some of what we've been talking about to a broader audience. You know, for me, as a clinician and real world data scientist and researcher, it really seems like the last year, even the last six months, there's been a sea change in excitement and, and really the conversation in Alzheimer's. You live and breathe at the National Institute on Aging, this topic. Um, what, do, what are you hearing? Does it does it really feel like there's a big change happening?
0: Yeah, certainly. I mean, um, you don't have to be at the National Institute on Aging. You just open up uh, your, you know, whatever your preferred news source is. Certainly with the um, announcement of aducanumab um, and then lacanumab, a new disease-modifying therapy early in January of this year, and then FDA approval in July, July. I mean, the the landscape is changing. We now have, you know, disease-modifying therapies for the first time, so... Very exciting. Uh, and yeah, we're seeing it in an NIA and uh, we're excited about what's, um, what's happening in the future.
1: Yeah, and I think part of that excitement, uh, at least for me clinically, is this idea that particularly with uh, lacanumab and, and soon hopefully um, Lily's drug Donanumab, you know, that we have a correlation between the reduction in plaque burden and the slowdown in cognition and function. Over time, and you know, we've never had that relationship before. Um, of course, one of the things that uh, everyone is talking about, particularly with these two drugs this year, um, is the need for early detection. Um, and you know, clinically, we're not really set up to do that. Uh, and how, how are how are you and 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 the folks you work with thinking about uh, the need for early detection?
0: Well, yeah, so uh, as alluded to, you know, these disease-modifying therapies, for the first time, we realized that the uh, the beginning of the disease takes place 10, 20, maybe even more years uh, before clinical symptoms emerge, when a typically uh, a patient might um, come in contact with a physician, receive a diagnosis. So uh, given we need to know who is going to be developing these diseases um, before there's clinical symptoms, we need to have a way of detecting when that, those changes are happening and who those people are that will benefit from the interventions. And um, so a lot of our work has been poured into strategies for earlier detection, screening people into trials so that we can test these very exciting uh, therapeutics uh, that are being developed right now and recently uh, receiving approval. Um, and so that's all happening right now. Um, we're in that world. And when, when I think about
1: you know detection in general, um, you know, I think about neuroimaging, right? And we know there's this uh, very uh, expensive but sophisticated amyloid uh, PET scan that uh, is, is remarkable, but, but that's very expensive. And then, you know, cerebral spinal, spinal fluid and, and some markers there, but that's still a fairly invasive procedure, uh, maybe not the most scalable in the world. And then of course, blood testing, uh, which I think is, you know, on, we're on the cusp of that, what, uh, you know, do you think there's a world where all three of those are at play or uh, what does your crystal ball say?
0: Yeah. My, well, I'm, <laughs> I've learned not to try to predict the future in this job, especially. Um, but uh, I think you're right. I mean, um, you know, I think what uh, the blood-based biomarkers give us relative to PET and CSF is it gives access to more people, that have maybe been underrepresented in a lot of the clinical trials we have. It also means that we don't need to uh, restrict our trials to places that have these expensive technologies and tools. Um, but uh, increasingly, as we discuss, Carl, I'm getting more excited, not just about biological markers, but also um, other strategies for detecting changes, uh, especially subtle changes in cognition earlier in the course of disease um, that might help us identify people that are going to be at risk for developing, um, you know, later stage uh, dementia earlier on so that they can also benefit not only from disease modifying therapies, uh, but something else we discuss, uh, preventative of- approaches using non-pharmacological strategies.
1: Yeah, you're, you're, you're referring to lifestyle changes there. And, and I know, right. you know, when I was doing my training
0: uh,
1: 20 years ago, you know, you were, you didn't want the diagnosis of dementia. You didn't want to even know it was in your family because there really wasn't much you can do about it. But now um, you're reading, and, and we're all learning a lot about how you know some some changes in, in lifestyle, whether it's diet, exercise, a combination of the two, um, meaningful experiences, right, that enhance learning and the neural networks in the brain that can lead to a kind of a neuro resiliency. These are all super exciting. Um, however, there, there's a challenge, like even the, the biomarkers we're talking about um, may be too late in the course of illness uh, to, to have lifestyle changes, for example, uh, correct. And even these exciting new drugs only have a modest impact. It seems like the need is for earlier and earlier detection, but yet we don't really have the technologies to, to capture symptoms you know 20 years before they manifest So how, how, are, how are you all thinking about that?
0: yeah so it's a great it's a, a, a great point um, So I think there are two things there there's the um, where we are in terms of the tools and technologies we have for detecting subtle changes earlier in the life course I think an important point to be made is traditionally because of how we thought about the d- disease and disease is we really looked later in life uh, when those diagnoses were typically, Taking place. So 65 plus in terms of, you know, age, age ranges, for example. Um, and now what we're talking about, if you're talking about midlife prevention, which is thought to be very important, um, using things like exercise, uh, that people have probably heard about, but also increasingly other techniques like cognitive training. Um, these are really focused much earlier in the life course. And we know a lot less about how the disease looks um, earlier in the life course, but we do have imaging. We have uh, biomarker testing. And now increasingly, we have the pervasive digital signals around us that we can capture using our devices um, and extract all sorts of multimodal data types to help understand how we're thinking and behaving in the real world and as a way of detecting subtle changes that might be indicative of later life risk.
1: Yeah, let, let's talk about that because we, you know, we hear a lot about,
0: and I've written extensively about the negative impact of
1: mobile media. Information and entertainment technologies. Um, you're really talking about using uh, this platform to to help uh, identify people at risk uh, and, and maybe even offer interventions. Talk about you know what that looks like because we know we're all walking around with a supercomputer in our pocket. Uh, how, how can that help detect early uh, Alzheimer's?
0: Yeah, so we talked a little bit about this already, but you know your 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 quote unquote phone. Uh, you know, is a powerful supercomputer that has a lot of sensors that are detecting all sorts of things, how you move, how you speak. Um, You know, cameras are detecting what your eyes are doing, what your face is doing. There's a lot of signals that are coming into your device. Increasingly, we have sophisticated computational data science techniques using AI and machine learning that can, you know, process those signals in more sophisticated ways to pull out subtle changes that we can then correlate to Um, data that relates to diagnosis later in life so that early on we can say, you know, this might be a signal, this might not. Um, And again, you're not restricted now because this personal supercomputer is with you. You you don't have to schedule an appointment to come into an academic medical center. We can do this increasingly in your living, free living environment. Uh, So you don't have to sit in an artificial set of tests or in a machine, you know, um, that's imaging your brain. Uh, necessarily. You can walk around the world in the way you would live and function in the way you hope these therapies are going to help prevent decline that's going to impact what's meaningful to you in your life. We can look at that in your life to understand better like what approaches are going to be helpful for you to maintain that quality of life that is so important to you, not just what we think might be helpful to you.
1: Yeah, super exciting. So the idea of taking uh, the the sensing abilities and computational power of this mobile device and, and using it in service of, of diagnosis. I, I, I'm putting my data science hat on now though. And, and, you know, we know that when we're building sophisticated models, particularly in healthcare, we, we need a gold standard. Right? Um, what do we do for a gold standard for early dementia when, you know, we don't clinically have any indicators of, of what that looks like?
0: Yeah, it's a huge challenge right now. And so I, um, Right now, one thing that the National Institute on Aging is putting out there is a uh, challenge, a prediction challenge uh, to the community to help us better understand some of these changes, both biological and non-biological early in life. um, That will increase our ability to determine at an individual level who's going to go on to develop which type of Alzheimer's and related dementia, what the course is going to look like, earlier in life. And the gold standard is a question that we're posing to the research community. There isn't one that we feel comfortable and the community has said, this is the thing we need to do. So we're still figuring that out right now and looking to people like you, Carl, and other experts in the field to help us um, um, come to grips with um, the stru- that struggle right now as we're building evidence.
1: Yeah. And that's a that's a nice segue to, to talk a little bit about real world data, right? So um om1 is a a leader in the real world health data space Um, and one of the conversations we're having internally is how do we use our our phenome technology which is a an ai-based patient finder tool use the diagnosis of alzheimer's that we can see in the electronic health record as a gold standard and then take our several years of data looking back in time and create what we would call a um, digital phenotype using the electronic health record. So I think there's some some opportunity there for us to look at a, a, a kind of prodrome, you know, and, and begin to model, again, at least from a health record phenotypic perspective, uh, what some things look like, and then combine it with your technologies.
0: Yeah, and, and what you're talking about, we had an uh, opportunity to build a real world data platform at NIA uh, just closed um, to do exactly what you're saying is to take non-clinical trial data, real-world data uh, using EHRs, health records, mobile devices, like I said, claims data, a whole gamut. Um, And again, we're really focused on inclusive uh, data collection of everyone that's burdened by these diseases, especially those disproportionately burdened by diseases like certain racial and ethnic minorities in this country. Um, And uh, so that, again, um, is a major investment that will be making in this space, and we're excited to have uh, people out there that are going to be responding to that announcement um, uh, in, you know, in the near future.
1: Yeah, cert- certainly we'll, we'll, we'll be involved. Uh, as we wrap up here, it seems like one of the obvious conclusions is it's going to require uh, data from multiple sources and, and some big thinking to solve this uh, enormous challenge for, for patients and their families. Um, you know, I'll, I'll let you end. Uh, talk a little bit more, if you want, about what else the National Institute on Aging is is doing uh, and how else the audience might want to think about um, all the good work.
0: Yeah, so we, we, you know, the National Institute on Aging, uh, we fund a host of, we're the lead agency, federal agency for the National Alzheimer's um, Plan uh, to um, drive a research agenda uh, to hopefully cure Alzheimer's. And um, we find 33 Alzheimer's disease research centers around the country that are, um, you know, trying to address many things, including treatment. I mentioned this um, uh, challenge, Open Innovation Challenge, we are launching September 1st. By the time this will air, it'll be open. You can go to prepare.drivendata.org. To read more about that. There'll be a total prize purse of $650,000 for this challenge. And again, it's focused on uh, prediction of AD earlier in the disease course. Um, another thing we're really excited about is better understanding what is clinically meaningful change in cognition and function earlier in the disease course, where these de- disease modifying therapies, especially, are kind of targeting the process. We don't know a whole lot about what's Meaningful change. You mentioned, Carl, for the first time, we have meaningful change in uh, cognition and functional outcomes. Typically, those are on composite cognitive measures, um, but that doesn't capture everything that could be meaningful to an individual patient. So we want to learn more about that, especially criteria in the research context to assess whether an intervention has had clinically meaningful impact, um, including both benefit and harm. Uh, Those are all open questions, especially early on. Um, with these earlier uh, therapies. Um, and then for general information, just go to alzheimers.gov. There's a, a wealth of information at that website.
1: That's great. And, and uh, clearly an investment uh, on the public side through you know taxpayer funded research, which is always important for advancing uh, any kind of progress with a complex disease like this. On the private side, you know companies like OM1, we're, we're investing in our neurology network. Uh, we're trying to bring in more clinics, uh, more patient data, in the dementia space, uh, and continue to invest in data science and artificial intelligence tools uh, to to help enrich uh, and 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 amplify some of the endpoints, which as as you know in the real world are are quite spotty. So, uh, with that, I will thank you for your time, and maybe we'll get back together in a few months uh, and do this again. Sounds good. Thanks, Carl.
0: hope you enjoyed this episode of Theoretically Speaking and that you'll tune in to future episodes where we chat with pharma value, evidence, and access experts. Don't forget to subscribe.